The following is a sermon podcast from White Ridge Baptist Church. Romans 9:13 to 29. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? even us whom he has called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed he says in Hosea, those who are not my people, I will call my people, and her who is not my beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, Only a remnant of them will be saved, for the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would be like, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Thank you, Christina, for sharing God's word with us this morning. And uh, I so appreciate seeing it on the screen to be able to read it as well. And uh, I'd also like to say, Doug, you did a fantastic job with that video explaining the sermon series, discuss- like the sermon series helps, like that's wonderful. And uh, I hope it's a resource that uh, will bless many people. Um, so let's get into today. And uh, what we're going to be talking about is God merciful or mean. And uh, we really need to be people of the word, people who regularly open up scripture and say, Lord, reveal yourself to me. I want to know you as you have described yourself, not just as the world talks about you or my own imagination. I need to know you as you have described yourself. So I need the help of your spirit. I need the help of others. I need the help of the sermon scripture study guides maybe. And uh, so just help me to know you. And as we study scripture, we come across some passages that cause us to question sometimes maybe who God is. And we're saying that that doesn't really resonate with me. I don't actually understand what does that mean that as it's written, Jacob I love, but Esau I have hated. Um, That doesn't sit well with me. And we need to wrestle with God as we read these words in Scripture and say, okay, this is true, so there's something I don't understand yet, because if God's completely good and this doesn't seem good to me, there's something I don't get. But we need to wrestle with God. We need to wrestle with Scripture and bring those things to Him. So I think a real genuine question from this would be, is God a hater? 
if that's true, that, that God didn't just pick, and ter- Pastor Terry said this last week, it wasn't so much about Jacob and Esau as individuals, but as nations. If God says, Jacob I loved, Israel I loved, but uh, Esau, the Gentiles I hate, is God a hater? What does that mean for us? And so I think we need to start wherever we're at with God. That's the only place we have as an option, right? So if you're saying, hey, I'm fairly new to faith. I don't know much about God. I don't know all the Bible. I don't have other verses to counteract this or to put it in perspective. I think that's why we as a church have decided to to preach regularly through books of the Bible so that you can't say right off the bat, I know God through all of Scripture, but we can say I'm getting to know Jesus through this book. And that will grow over years. And in time, I will have more of the whole counsel of God. So for those of us who have been starting through the the series on Romans, one of the verses I'd want you to be aware of to connect with this verse about Jacob I love but Esau I hated is that God also says, for God does not show favoritism. And that is in the context about the Jews and the Gentiles. Gentiles are everyone who aren't Jews. The Bible says, I don't show favoritism. I love all. We just sang about, for God so loved the world, he gave his only son. So that's the big truth I need to remember when I read a passage of scripture that makes me wonder, is God a hater? And then I need to maybe do a little bit of research. The first thing I should do is, Holy Spirit, give me peace. Help me to encounter you in this. And then give me the resources or conversations that help me to understand this in the context so that I understand it well. So one of the things in this phrase is that the, the words in Greek have a vast variety of meanings that we need to choose from. And so the word hated, that they're used here, Esau, I hated, can mean hate, it can mean disgust, abhor, but it also can mean to prefer against, to choose over. And so then we read this a little bit differently and we can say, Jacob, I chose, Esau, I didn't choose. Okay, well, that still sounds a little bit hard, especially when you're talking about people groups. What does that mean? And so we have to understand it in a larger context, and we need to think about salvation history. We need to think about how God created everything, and then from Adam all the way through Jesus, there's a story of salvation. There's salvation history that we need to understand that statement about Jacob and Esau in in its proper context. So we need to know God's big story. So in a nutshell, first of all, we know no one created God. He's always existed. He's all-powerful, ever-existent. He knows everything. He created everything out of his good pleasure. He created it out of love. He created it, and he created us because he wants us to have relationship with him. But we know from Scripture early on in Genesis, right at the beginning, People had their choice to make. Do you want to trust God that he is good? Or do you want to take from something and and show that, no, I think there's other wisdom. I think God might be holding out on me. And very early on, Adam and Eve chose to disobey God. And right from that moment, what entered in is spiritual death. So while the world continued on and they kept living in the beauty of creation, there was a death that was slowly killing everything. And that's what the Bible calls as sin. So there is death to the physical world and to people's bodies, but there is also a separation between them and God that they could not repair. They could not do that. So now, by the grace of God, he tells us about how he wants to restore us to him. 
And right away, again, very early on with Adam and Eve, he, he makes a prophecy and he says there's going to be a snake that bites your heel, heel, but the heel will crush its head. And what it means is that snake represents evil. This evil's going to try to destroy you, but in the process of trying to destroy you, it will be crushed. It will be defeated once and for all. And for us, that prophecy was fulfilled, took place in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ was born, died, rose again, ascended into heaven. Because of what Christ did for us, he paid a price that we couldn't pay. But what we need to remember in the context of Jacob I loved, Esau I hated, is that Jesus needed to be born. He didn't just pop up out of nowhere. He's not a fanciful imagination of man saying, oh, this is what God is like, let's describe him as Jesus. He was a real person who had a real family tree. So from the moment of that promise to Adam, which went to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the world, the evil of the world, Satan, his angels, were trying to keep that promise from being fulfilled. So when you hear of holy wars and that in the Bible, in the Old Testament, it's about God saying, no, this group of people is going to be the family lineage of Jesus Christ. And when he chose Jacob over Esau, it said it had nothing to do about them as people. It was just God's choice saying, Jesus is going to come through you. There had to be a family line that was picked. And it was absolutely out of love that Jesus said, I'm going to do. And all throughout history, so he picks the most unusual people to be in the lineage of Christ. If you want to know a dysfunctional family, <laughs> look at Jesus' background. It's very much that. And all the New Testament then is a fulfillment then of the promise. After Christ, the Jews have been a chosen people. Now he says, now it's open up to Jews and Gentiles alike. Anybody, it's the spiritual Israel that God is concerned about. The people who hear his voice and respond to him and say, yes, I, I have you as my Lord and my Savior. So what we need to remember is that God is a God of love. Romans 5, again, because we've been studying Romans, let's look at this, Romans 5, verse 8, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So if you have that question about, is God a hater? Please remember, as you wrestle with that, and you should, you shouldn't just pass it over and say, no, no, I don't think it is. Wrestle with it. But remember that God is love. He died for his enemies so that we might be restored to him. And remember this, that he died for us, and that means for anyone who is willing to hear and receive, you can have salvation in Jesus Christ. If you're hearing this right now and you're under, understanding anything about Jesus, that is his allowing you to say, this is the good news of Jesus Christ. It's up to you to respond to it. And what we need to remember is that God does not owe us salvation. He does not owe you a thing. Mercy is a gift. I was thinking the other day, you know, if you get a speeding ticket, I don't know if any of you ever got that, but it's like we, we almost kind of, by habit, think we deserve mercy. I'm going to go and I'll say, well, you know, I'll pay the price, but don't give me the fines or whatever. Like somehow we think mercy just has to be given, but God doesn't owe us a thing. We're dead in our trespasses and we can't bring ourselves to life. So whenever God goes, you're alive, you're alive, you're alive, and there's this beautiful reality of his sovereignty and our responsibility is pure grace. And that's going to take us into our next point as far as 
a question that we should consider, is God unjust? And we see that in this passage in verses 14 to 18. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? Now that's a rhetorical question. We're not expecting there's going to be a big discussion and you shouldn't be surprised that it says, by no means, of course he's not unjust. It's not a question. If you read Bible at all and, and, we, and we know who Christ is, he's not unjust. That's at the core of his character. He's justice. He's mercy. So I want you to know that from, the, from a Bible's perspective, if you have that question, is God unjust? The answer is no. But when you read Scripture and he seems to be unjust, you need to enter into those passages and struggle with that with God to say, Lord, what was your purpose in this? I don't understand it. Can you show me how this justice relates to salvation history? But I also want you to be thinking that it's not just a rhetorical question. For today, from a pastoral perspective, it can be a very personal question. So maybe it's not just about salvation, if someone's saved or not, and how God chooses and God, people's choice, is that just? But just in life, is there some things that you just wonder, is God fair? Maybe not even to others, like just, just, just to me. I feel that God's unjust. What I want you to know is God is aware that we struggle with those types of thoughts. Especially as you read through the Psalms, again and again, it shows the anguish of people living in daily life and having the wisdom to at least turn to God. Because even if they don't get an answer, and often they don't get an answer, but what they get is Him. They get His presence. And then they remember, Lord, no, you do love me. You, do, you, you, you aren't fair. You are so gracious beyond compare. So I just want you to be encouraged. If the hard questions are coming into your mind, the worst thing you can do is say, oh, no, I shouldn't think about that. Put it away. Or just not bring it to God and just blabber about it with other people. When you have those heart concerns, bring them to God and respectfully say, Lord, I'm struggling with this today. Can you help me? Through your word, through your people, through your spirit. The passage goes on to say, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. He says, I will, I will, I will. He doesn't just do these things. He's not just compassion and mercy. He, he is that. He's the source of all mercy. He's the source of all compassion. If you see it in the world, but people say they're not Christians, but you still see it evidence, it's only because it's still a, a, like an afterglow of them being made in his image. This does not exist without him being present in some way. Mercy, compassion can only exist because it comes from God. So even people who don't worship him, if they're able to display that, it's still because they're made in his image. And we need to remember that, that, that God is so gracious. He gives of himself again and again and again. So this is another part of the passage that's a little confusing. It's, it's something that if we were doing a precept Bible study or in Bible college, you'd be spending a lot of time on this verse. It says, so then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. And that it is referring to our salvation. So it's saying that salvation is not about you choosing something. It's about God choosing. It's saying God is sovereign. So if we were in a theological class or debate, you'd hear of people who are, are Calvinists and Arminians, and they'd be talking about the difference between God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. And there'd be a big, big discussion. 
What I want to just say today in this context is in the mind of Paul, from what I can gather, he just says that there's two aspects of reality that are equally true. God is sovereign, man is responsible. God is sovereign for your salvation. You are responsible for being away from him. You're not responsible for choosing him. That, that, that's, there's that grace, there's that mystery. Because we're dead in our trespasses. There's already been a sentence on our lives. Anyone who's breathing right now, you think you're alive, but in the sight of God, we're dead because we're apart from him. So only by God's grace, and we don't understand how he chooses. We just know that he loves everyone. This is something that's far above me, how God works in that way. So I just need to be able to say, the Bible says that these two things are equally true. God is sovereign when it comes to salvation. Man is responsible for his choices. Choose this day whom you will serve. Equal truthful statements. Paul doesn't go into an argument. He just goes right on to say, For Scripture says to Pharaoh, For this purpose I have raised you up to demonstrate my power in you that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So Pharaoh was someone who would, did not have a saving relationship with God. He was persecuting. He'd put people in, uh, in slavery. Well, he didn't do it for 400 years, but he was control over that. He thought he was like God, like Ra, the sun god. And God says, I have control over everything about you. And I am going to have my power and my name, which is my character, my glorious being, shown through the way that you live, even though it's wrong. <laughs> There's something that's going to come through, and through your life, people are going to know about me. So that's a hugely big statement. Let's just, just slow down a little bit and look at Pharaoh. If you remember who Pharaoh is, he was the, the man in charge of all of Egypt. He was the one who, when the Israelites were enslaved, Moses came to him and said, God is saying, let my people go. And he said, no way, I'm not going to let them go. And eventually, through the plagues that God put on, he let the people go, and then he pursued the Israelites. It says that they escaped going through the Red Sea. They walked through that area, and when the Egyptians followed, the waters fell, and the vast majority of the Egyptian army died that day. So, in other words, saying that the Lord said, look, Pharaoh, you're not going to be agreeable to me, but your life is still going to be a sign for my glory. And everybody's going to be, know that you were destroyed. You who think you're a god are absolutely nothing without me. And you're going to be destroyed. So I just want to remind you, so, so Pharaoh then was not elected, if you want to say that, appointed for salvation. He had choices to make where his heart was hardened. But there was a story for how Pharaoh got to be where he was. And so remember that there's promises made to Adam. There's promises made to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, this is the lineage of Jesus Christ. Okay, remember what we said before about there needs to be salvation history, there needs to be a family tree for Jesus. So from Jacob, he had a son named Judah. Down the road, he'd have King David. King David is the one who is a great foreshadowing of Jesus Christ. But um, Jacob also had a son named Joseph. And uh, this was about 400 years before the, the occurrence of Moses and Pharaoh. So this was a totally different leader at the time. But Joseph was treated unfairly. He was, it was said, what, what you thought was evil, a lot of evil was done to him, God could use that evil for good. We learn through the life of Joseph that even evil, God can use it for the good of other people. So Pharaoh, um, Joseph was in Egypt, in prison, 
Pharaoh has a dream. Pharaoh has a dream that he can't understand. They know that Joseph has the ability to interpret dreams. They say, bring him over, tell him what's happening. Long story short, the dream was this. It meant that for seven years there's going to be prosperity, and then for seven years there's going to be great famine. Pharaoh at the time, this is 400 years before the Pharaoh that we read about in Romans, he looks at Joseph and says, I'm going to put you in charge of everything. The only person who has more power than you is me. So because of Joseph, the whole known world at that time, because Egypt was a mega power, everybody was starving. He, he stored up food for seven years, made these big um, storage units, and then people came for food for the next seven years because they were losing everything. And they gave everything, everything they owned, just to have food. And that's how Egypt became so powerful. So through that time, don't you think that God gave Egyptians the ability and maybe the appreciation that there's a God who exists and loves them when, when Joseph was in power, when he was leading everything? Don't you think that that's something that future leaders should remember? That it wasn't about any of their gods that saved them. It was the God of, of, of Joseph, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But Pharaoh didn't remember that. And I think what we need to remember too is that for every person, God can look at them and say, for this very purpose, I have raised you up. That statement could be said of Pharaoh in his evil life. And it also was said of Joseph in his good life. I raised you up for this. And I want to just make you aware of this, that that statement can be said of you as well. I've raised you up to show my power and my name. And your influence will probably not be for the whole world, but it will be for your friends, your family, your workplace. Wherever you are, God has raised you up to make his power and glory known. And we have to say thank you, Lord, for that. That is more merciful than I deserve. So we have to decide when God softens our hearts and he makes us aware of his reaching out to us, do we want to respond to him? But the Bible says that in verse 9, verse 18, it says, So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whoever he wills. So again, there's this mystery. God's sovereign. He softens and hardens, but there's still this reality of human responsibility and choice. So we're going to talk a little bit about what hardening is. So hardening can be, first of all, just an insensitivity towards God. So for many people, today you're here in church, I don't know, for all of you, where is your heart stance before God? Are you in a surrendered relationship with him? Are you considering him? What I do know is that you're here, and I do know that you're hearing about him, and I would say that this is an invitation God is giving you to know him and to enter into life with him. So however it is, God has said, I want you to hear about me. And we have choices to make about hardening. And we can say, well, eh, that was great, but I, I, I don't know if I will believe that. I'll just move on. So that's the starting of hardening. I'm just insensitive to when God even tries to introduce himself to me. And then it can also be the withdrawal from or of divine influence, meaning that, that sometimes I just really recognize God's work in my life, and other times he seems to draw away, or sometimes I take myself out of that environment. I just say, I'm not going to church anymore. I'm not going to read the Bible. I'm not going to listen to anything Christian. I just, yeah. And I take myself out of that divine influence. It's another sign of hardening. There's many other definitions, but what I want to emphasize is this. Hardening, so when it says God hardens a heart, it's not a fresh evil. 
God can't do evil. It's not possible for him. He is completely good. So again, we might have a misunderstanding. It says God hardens people. How can he do that? That seems kind of mean. We need to remember that God doesn't do anything that's evil. We also need to remember that there's no person that deserves salvation. So when a heart is hardened, it's really just being given over to what it desired before without knowing God. It's just given over to that. So I want to make this more personal for us because this isn't even just a thing about am I in a saving relationship with God or not. It's on a daily basis. Am I living in a way that I'm more likely to respond to God and be soft to him? Or am I hardening myself? Are there dangers that God might be making me aware of so that I can turn back to him and say, Lord, help me because I'm, I'm failing, I'm hardening. So here's some warning signs of a hardening heart. Disobeying. Having wealth and prosperity. This isn't a, a, it's just a danger sign if that, if that overwhelms your thought life. Not so much about having it, but that's what you live for. Rebelling and being discontented. Rejecting a deserved rebuke. Refusing to listen. Failing to respond. If you were re to read the narrative of Pharaoh and Moses and the dialogue that goes on there, you would see evidence of all these different types of hardening. And uh, we need to be aware that when those things happen, it's, if, we, if we're aware that I'm starting to do this, I'm, I'm starting to disobey or I'm not listening to people when they lovingly rebuke me, we have a choice to make then and say, Lord, forgive me. Will you, will you just restore my mind, renew the way I think so that I want to choose you and what's pleasing to you? Because right now I'm choosing myself and what's pleasing to me. I can tell you that's a warning sign. If you're not even asking God about what you're doing or how you're using your day, you're just living and every now and then you pray for God to bless you, that's a, that's a warning sign. Because <laughs> life then is about you and what God might give you rather than about God and how he might make his glory known through you. So a question that I'd ask you to consider today, what warning signs of a hardening heart do you need to take notice of? This, of course, is not an exhaustive list. But that's a very important question. In what areas of your life do you tend to get hard and sensitive to God? Because maybe you just don't want to know what he says in that. Maybe you just don't want him to be present with you when you're doing certain things. Sometimes, we, again, we'd never say this prayer out loud in the actual words, but every time you choose to sin, you are more or less saying, God, please get away from me. I don't want you here. That's a hardening of heart. So once you start seeing your sin as that type of enemy, that every time I willfully choose sin, I find joy in sin, and then I get mad at God because he says sin is killing you, and say, no, but I like it. God is saying, your heart is getting hard. Don't play with that fire. Be soft towards me. Receive me. I'll change your thought life. I'll change what you find joy in. Second question. What steps can you take to assure the health of your heart? From the overflow of your heart, the mouth speaks. Monitor the kind of things that come out of your mouth. What do you talk about all the time? Let that help you see the condition of your heart. And then say, Lord, something needs to change. And I can't just do it myself. I need to surrender to you. The only change that really makes a difference 
is when I abide with God and I change because I'm with him and because he's within me. All the stuff that I do out of my own self-effort just to prove that I can be that way, I can be a good Christian, it might look good to everyone and it might fool me, but it has no pleasure to God. A discipline is only useful if it gets you into the presence of God and then God will deal with your heart the way he wants to. But we need to notice the things that we tend to get hard towards. Let's keep moving on here. Is God a fault finder? So God, uh, Paul's having like this sparring match with a fictional character and he just says, I know these questions are going to keep coming back. So you will say to me, why does he still find fault? Who can resist his will? If God chooses who's saved and people don't, like, they can't choose to save themselves, how can we be responsible for that, right? And God said, he says, the, you're misunderstanding again. God is sovereign. He's never at fault. And you can, do, you can rage like this to God, but you will never be able to make an argument against him that he's not merciful or loving. Now, Paul's not saying that if you have a sincere question that you shouldn't bring it to God, just like we said earlier. But he's saying when your questions are a smokescreen that keep you from being submissive to God, obeying God, or when your questions are causing confusion or misleading other people, that is wrong. But when you have real questions, bring those to God. But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Well, what is molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? So, so again, Paul doesn't get distracted in a long conversation. He just goes right in to say, well, look at this illustration of a potter with the clay. And this is what it says. Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and the other for dishonorable use? It's not a matter, like, God created us. He can do what he wants, and he's good. We have to remember that. He's good. He does what he wants, and he's good. He's not unjust. A connecting point here would be for uh, Jeremiah 18. It says, and the vessels he was making out of clay was spoiled in the potter's hand. The potter was working with a clay pot that was broken. It wasn't well, and he reworked it into another vessel as it seemed good for the potter to do. We need to trust that whatever God is doing in someone's life, he's doing it out of a heart of goodness and justice at the same time. Then there's a phrase that's a little bit harder to understand too, vessels of mercy or vessels of wrath. It says, what if God, desiring to show his wrath and make known his power, has endured with much much patience the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy? So he's saying, There are some people, God wants his power and his name to be known. And there's people who deserve to be judged. All of us actually deserve to be judged right now. It should just be game over. If it wasn't for the grace of God, we would be judged now. But God says, no, I'm delaying because in time, I want those who receive mercy to see how great that mercy is. That's why he delays. It says, I am patient. I don't want anyone to perish. And I want those who are saved to understand how great their salvation is. And that's the joy of what God has for us. A question, if you got to spend more time in this passage deeply, I'd ask you, how does this passage make you more grateful knowing that you are a vessel of mercy? If you've given your life to Christ and you understand that that's all of his loving grace towards you, How does that impact your view of salvation and how you want to share him with others? 
So the last question as we get ready for communion is just this, is God merciful? And this is verses 25 to 29. As indeed he says in Hosea, Hosea is a man in the Old Testament, he's called a minor prophet. He was told to marry a woman that didn't seem wise to marry. This woman was unfaithful to him, she was an adulteress, she almost lived like a prostitute, she left him, and then God said, go bring her back, let her know that she's loved. And it was a picture of Israel being unfaithful to God, and God saying, bring back, because she's loved. And so then we read these words, it says, I will call the unloved and make them beloved. In the Old Testament, referred to the Israelites who were disobedient, and God was saying, I don't love you, I want to divorce you. He says, there will be a time where that changes, and I, I love you, I've forgiven you, you will be beloved. Goes on to the next verse and says, in the very place where it was said of them, you are not my people, you will be called sons of God. Again, how gracious God is, because people, we reject him. He says, okay, have it your way, get away from me, you're not my people but then he makes it possible for restoration to happen. Again, this is fulfilled in Jesus Christ that we can become children of the living God. And then it just finally says, only a remnant will be saved. So of that family line of Jesus that we were talking about was important for, for, fulfillment, for prophecy to be fulfilled, only a few of those people will be saved, but it opens up to the whole world God says there's many people now that can come and can become the true Israel, anybody who accepts Jesus Christ. And what we need to know is that when the Lord's judgment comes, when it comes, it will be fast and it will be speedy and it will be sure. So this is the last thing I want to mention in connection with God's mercy. We love hearing about God's mercy. We don't like hearing about God's wrath. We need to be very aware of both. And so in the handout, there's a few parables that if you want to study deeper, there's parables that will really help you to understand the difference between or how the wrath against sin and the mercy and grace to forgive it go hand in hand. You don't understand mercy if you don't understand wrath. And so when we see these things, again, when we see God's wrath, it might just be, is God a hater? Is God unjust? Is God a fault finder? Those are the kind of things that can come to our mind when we just think of God's wrath. But if you don't know much about Scripture, about the Bible, what I want you to know is at least this, and this is what we come to celebrate today. I want you to remember the cross of Christ. Because this is where we know that God had wrath. Sin has to be paid for. Christ paid for it for you. If you don't want that, you're going to pay for it yourself. You don't want to pay for it yourself. God has made a way for you to have salvation in him. So how will you let the truth of God's sovereignty and our, and our personal responsibility impact your life? As we have communion today, that's the question is, have I given my life to Christ? I don't want to have to die for my sins. I want to have life in him. Do I, will I accept what Christ did? Or will I say, nope, I want nothing of Christ. I'll face God's wrath myself. That's what we're at. So today, if you're home right now, if you don't have your bread and the juice, could you go get that? And in a few moments, we'll have communion together. Lord, I know your goodness reigns through all the earth. And that your heart's desire is to help me see 
how much your love is worth that you made me in your image to spend eternity with you that my sins could be forgiven and my life be made brand new so reveal to me your glory reveal to me your majesty reveal to me eyes that can see that you're the hope of all humanity and as i gain this vision of who i am in you i know you'll use your holy spirit to keep your presence in my view just help me see what you are doing within this world that you have made so that I can go and tell the nations of this life that never fades. So reveal to me your glory. Reveal to me your majesty. Reveal to me eyes that can see that you're the hope of all humanity. Help me think about the miracle of Christ. Help me realize all you've sacrificed. Use me to glorify your name, to bring joy to a world that's full of pain. And may you be blessed, and may you be loved, as your children begin to recognize their Father above. So reveal to me your glory. Reveal to me your majesty. Reveal to me eyes that can see that you're the hope of all humanity. Reveal to me your glory. Reveal to me your majesty. Reveal to me eyes that can see that you're the hope of all humanity that you're the hope of all humanity. And may your presence be known to me. Right now we're gonna take uh, part in communion, which is open to anyone who has acknowledged Christ as our Lord and Savior. And uh, if you're able to participate with me, we'll first take of the bread. And the bread symbolizes his body given for us. And he suffered and learned obedience for our sake. And so let's take of the bread together. And then the Bible tells us that after the meal, Jesus took the cup, which is a symbol of the covenant that God made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and said, I'm taking this cup 
for you. This is the blood that I take for you. Let's do this now in remembrance of him for the forgiveness of our sins. Lord, thank you so much for being completely good. You are the creator of everything. And thank you for desiring relationship with us, for being willing to make people who are your enemies your friends. And thank you that Christ paid a price that we could not or would not even want to pay on our own. Thank you for the salvation that comes through Jesus Christ and for the gift of your Holy Spirit living in us. Lord, help us to walk with you, to enjoy your presence, and to live in you so that others might see you as well. May your glory and fame, your name, be known through us, we pray in Jesus' name. I want to let you know that typically we have a benevolent offering tied together with communion, which is used to help needs in the community. Right now, we have a sufficient amount of funds there. So what we'd ask you to do instead is we host a food bank here every other Thursday, and we get a limited package from Winnipeg Harvest, and we always try to supplement it with more food. And so uh, there's a bin that's right beside our mail folders. You can drop off food whenever, but what we do is whatever comes, we supplement the meals. And I can tell you the people that are coming, they are so thankful for the food. They need it. So if you're able to help instead of in lieu of a benevolent offering, please consider giving to our food bank. Thank you. Amen. Praise be to God. Praise be to God. Lord God, every heart that praises you can do so because of your mercy to us. Every heart that is inclined to you who has put their faith in Christ is a testament to your mercy, and we give you all of the praise for that. I thank you, Lord, that we can know you and that we can serve you and that we can love you. And I thank you for the joy of relationship with you, and we give you all of our worship. I pray that you bless each one of us as we go from here. We pray this in, in your name. Amen. Have a wonderful day.